Welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. on KOPN 89.5 FM and KOPN.org. And it's where the birds and the bees and the donkeys and the fiddles all come together. I'm your host, Margot McMillan, and we're all glad that you're here, too. Thanks for listening. And this podcast of Farm and Fiddle was originally broadcast on February 9th, 2022. It's an interview with Sherry Duggar, Executive Director of the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, or SRAP. Here goes. Delighted to talk to you. We haven't really talked to SRAP for a while, and so Let's just start with the just the basic question, what is SRAP? Sure, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, so Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, we are an, a national-based uh, organization. We work all over the country and I think approximately 170-some uh, counties right now. We empower communities to protect themselves from the de- devastating public health, environmental, and socioeconomic damages caused by industrial livestock production. So For more than 20 years, our team has worked throughout the U.S. to provide this free assistance to any community that requests our help when facing the threats uh, posed by factory farms. Mm -hmm. So maybe tell us what a factory farm is. Absolutely. So these uh, operations contain millions, uh, thousands, sometimes millions of animals, uh, and oftentimes their waste is stored in these open air lagoons. So... um, and they're usually cited in areas um, next to communities that either don't have the political power or the economic power or the know-how in order to oppose these operations coming in. So this is part of our industrial food system um, in order to you know, uh, create millions and millions and millions of pounds, billions of pounds of, of protein um, throughout each year but uh, and throughout the United States. But these operations, they, they pose uh, definite environmental uh, impacts, harms, definite public health harms. We've seen lots of uh, communities suffering from cancer, from um, miscarriages, from lots of different, from asthma, from breathing problems, respiratory problems, et cetera. So we work with these communities when oftentimes they find out at the last minute that this operation will be coming in. And we work with them to try to help empower them to be able to actually speak up, to talk to their lawmakers, to, to figure out what they can do at that last minute to oppose these operations coming in or to, to if it does end up coming in, to help keep those corporations accountable for the the pollution that oftentimes these these operations bring to those communities. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that when uh, when a CAFO or a, a factory farm wants to come in, they don't always um, tell the community. So how do people find out? Well, it can often be times uh, they can have notices put into newspapers. Local newspapers are, is usually the way that people will find out 
through word of mouth, something like that, somebody will see a notice that comes in and they have a, a public comment period that they might be able to actually engage with their lawmakers to talk about what the situation is, to ask questions and to, to you know voice their concerns about that operation coming in. So our field operations team includes technical experts who can help them to you know educate them on what these manure lagoons do, what the what the regulation should be for these types of lagoons that are that are football you know field sized lagoons housing waste animal waste from like i said sometimes up to millions of animals so we are able to bring in those technical experts to help them to make them understand what those impacts will be and um, we, we our team is made up of technical experts uh, independent farmers and rural residents who like these communities that we serve have actually had uh, these operations move in and have been impacted by them Mm-hmm. So what kinds of strategies can uh, a neighborhood employ to um, to try to resist one of these factory farms? Yeah, it just depends. So our process is we usually will wait for the phone to ring or an email comes in. People will find us, you know, through Google searches or word of mouth. They found they found someone else who is, uh, you know, went went through this situation before and they'll come to SRAP. And like I said, oftentimes it's these communities that don't have a lot of political power. They don't have a lot of knowledge already. And so they literally they're in a crisis moment. And we are we are oftentimes, you know, situated with a crisis situation that we have to help these people navigate. Um, it, our first step is to have a just a general conversation with them to find out if they're going to organize, if they're willing to organize their community around this effort, because we're not going to go in there and actually do the work for them. We want to make sure that we teach them and that they are willing to organize their community to fight this so that we can leave that capacity there so they can continue to monitor and to make sure that, like I said, those, those corporations are held accountable for what they do do if they do come in. Um, we will have just a general question and answer session. It's really all about listening. So we'll sit there, listen, take notes. Um, Lynn Henning, who is on our team, she will oftentimes before that conversation happens, she'll do a site analysis of the area. So she'll look at what watersheds around, what schools are around, what the situation looks like for that particular community, what they're dealing with. She'll also look at you know, the environmental justice issues, which in, ter in terms of like diversity, what, you know, are these communities of color? What's, what's the situation in that particular area? So we have these conversations, we'll listen, we'll go back to our drawing board and kind of talk through what are the options? Can they, like I said, can they um, participate in that permit process? Is there an opportunity for them to talk to their lawmakers, their local, you know, um, uh, legislators about what the situation is and, and whether or not they want this, this operation coming in. Uh, is there, um, oftentimes with our technical experts, there can be something happening with the watershed, you know, nearby that we might want to kind of go after. We can, we can work to try to create health ordinances that could stop this operation from coming in in a health ordinance, a general health ordinance kind of way. So it really is a custom approach for all of these communities to figure out what is the best approach. And sometimes as some of our team members have said before, sometimes you just have to throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Well, um, it seems like here in Missouri, a lot of the options have narrowed and you talked you talked about health ordinances just now. We've had a lot of pressure on communities that have health ordinances. In fact, there's a lawsuit, you may be aware of it right now, going through the courts. Why 
why are the legislators so willing to um, bend to this corporate power and change their laws? Well, I can't speak for them because I'm not in their shoes, but I do <laughs> feel like there's probably a little bit of financial um, uh, pressure, uh, I think, uh, or financial um, benefit to them as lawmakers if they're, you know, supported by these corporations or by these uh, industry interests. Um, I, I honestly, I don't, I can't speak for them. I can't speak for why, but they they look at these corporations as their constituents as well. And so they are trying to make their constituents happy for whatever reason. Huh. Well, that's really that's really interesting because we've also had a law change, which um, has allowed the corporations and foreign corporations to actually own land in Missouri, and they and they own quite a bit of land in Missouri. So um, I guess that I guess that translates to a, a lawmaker as. A citizen? I, I would guess. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that definitely who um, throughout throughout the nation, not just in Missouri, but I, I think uh, land ownership is definitely a big question and a big problem. Um, and that really boils down to uh, a national security issue. When you uh -huh. think about, you know, who actually owns our land, I think there's, uh, I don't remember what the numbers were, but there's, there are many, many acres throughout the United States. I, I don't know if it was thousands or millions of acres I feel like it was millions of acres that were actually the government doesn't actually even know who owns them. So there's some mm -hmm. there's some lack of of recording of some of the the land that's actually owned. But we have a lot of land that's owned by some by corporate entities and outside mm -hmm. interests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where are you, Sherry? I'm actually in Indiana, in the middle. In Indiana. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and you said that there are SREP people all over the United okay. States. Yes, absolutely. We have Scott Dye, who lives in uh, Missouri, and also um, Ashlyn Busick. They are, they're uh, wonderful S rappers on our team. We've got folks all over the country, um, and I and we do we are working within about 170, I believe, uh, counties throughout the United States. Um, these these operations are going in all over the place. So we try to certainly during pre-COVID times, uh, SRAP has certainly tried to be in these communities with these folks to get you know to sit down with them at their kitchen table and talk through the issues and to work out these plans of attack. Um, but since uh, COVID times, we've uh, learned to do that through Zoom. And, and uh, have adapted and have actually, you know, had a really great uh, string of wins here um, uh, through the last few months of, of working with communities to, to actually help them and empower them to, to fight back. Well, tell us about some of the wins, because we, we need to hear this. Absolutely. I mean, one of them was in Missouri. Scott Dye was uh, the community, the coalitions and the community groups throughout the state of Missouri opposed uh, Smithfield when they tried to deregulate 11 of their worst polluting uh, operations throughout the state of Missouri. They wanted to go to a more general permitting process for those operations. They're their largest operations, and they're also um, showing quite a history of pollution. And we uh, submitted, I believe, about 300 pages of public comments on, on that uh, effort by Smithfield to deregulate their operations. And uh, we actually got the DNR to take notice, the uh, Department of Natural Resources took notice and they were, um, Smithfield ended up because of that public pressure withdrawing. 10 of those 11 permit applications were still watching the one 
permit application to see if they're what's going to happen with that one. We have in the meantime um, done a quite a bit of research on on Smithfield and the the spills and the the pollution that they have caused throughout the state of Missouri over the past 30 years. We will be coming out with a report on that very soon. And and that's a huge win. So, you know, that was public pressure and the the power of the people's voice speaking up and talking about what they want versus what this corporation wants. And this corporation withdrew that application, those applications on at least 10 of the 11 uh, operations thus far. So we're still watching and and certainly going to be engaging at every step of the way. And that was really a community effort. That was coalitions and community groups all across Missouri speaking up and working together to make sure that happened. Well, is it your impression that the um, CAFO applications have lessened, or are they still uh, are there still as many people applying for CAFO permits as there ever were? Yeah, we haven't seen that slow down certainly, oh. um, and and we thought maybe during the pandemic that would slow down, but I don't I don't think that was the case. I can't say for sure on the exact numbers. I haven't actually researched the numbers, but we've seen we get typically one to two requests from communities across the country every every week usually, and um, it it just it just keeps you know you you fight one and and you win or lose, and then it, if you win, it'll usually pop up somewhere else, and and so these these operations if they lose in one area, they'll try to go somewhere else and and set up shop again. So. It's an ongoing battle, and we haven't really seen it slow down, unfortunately. Yeah, and talking to some people, I understand that there is a level below a permitted level where people can build up to, you know, a certain number of hogs or poultry or whatever, cattle, Absolutely. and um stay without without any kind of permitting regulations. Yeah. And oftentimes they will do that on purpose so that they can avoid that permitting process for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a contract grower transition program where we're actually working with contract growers to try to get them out of that industrial system and to get them mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, into either doing something else on their farm or advocating and helping us to do some of this organizing with communities so that they understand the other side of things. And then we have last uh, Food and Farm Network, which we launched this past year, which is really to engage communities beyond that community support CAFO fight. So once that fight's over and, and that you know has resolved itself in one way or the other, either it's going to be built or not, we want to make sure that we have an opportunity for, for engaging and, and um, getting these community members to advocate for better food and agriculture systems. So we are looking at leadership development opportunities for them, coalition building for them, as well as actually engaging them in policy efforts, either at a state or a, a national level. You have been listening to an interview with Sherry Duggar, who is executive director of the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, or called SRAP. And I want to direct you to another podcast that is with one of the folks who is part of the Contract Grower Transition Program. That's Craig Watts, and that is podcast number 32 on the Farm and Fiddle podcast page. Farm and Fiddle airs on Wednesday nights on KOPN 89.5 FM in Mid-Missouri and KOPN.org. We're not just radio, we're community radio. And let's go back to the interview with Sherry Duggar. (laughs) 
Well, uh, well, tell us another win. I, I need to hear another one. <laughs> Gosh, in um, Illinois, uh, Karen Hudson uh, and, and her, the groups throughout Illinois were fighting um, an operation that wanted to come in. They were applying for an FSA loan, I believe. I'm, I hope I'm going to remember all the details of this. I, I uh, as a leader of the organization, don't get into the weeds so much, so I probably am not going to do them service uh, that I should. But there was an endangered species that was going to be impacted. There were watersheds that were going to be impacted, and there were communities that were going to be impacted from this operation coming in. And again, um, I, I believe um, there was a, a, a report of no significant impact. I've, I hope I said that right. Um, Kathy Martin, who's one of our technical experts, would probably get mad at me if I said that wrong. But there was a, a finding of no um, significant impact on the environmental impacts of this operation that was done. Um, and, and we actually, Kathy, actually, uh, our technical expert that we hired as a consultant went through that. And basically, this was a five-page report saying, oh, it'll be fine. It's not really going to impact the environment. And she is an engineer. And as an engineer who's done this work you know, around CAFOs for decades now, she went through this and found 35 pages worth of problems with that report, turned it in to the agency. And actually we were able to, because of that, they withdrew the application for that operation as well. So that was a huge win, not only for the communities that were, would have been impacted by that and the environment that would have been impacted by that, but also the, the, the endangered species. It was a, a certain kind of, I think it was a chorus frog that would have been impacted by that. So um, a win in lots of different ways. And, and there's, you know, lately we've had just a lot of those. We don't get wins a lot. Uh, we, we certainly take what we can get. But when we're able to actually stop someone from from moving into an area, um, we take that and we certainly celebrate our team and, and our communities that we're able to help do that. Uh, OK, well, how would people get a hold of SREP if they unfortunately need your your help? Absolutely. So it's uh, it's www.sraproject.org. Uh, we have a, a online form that they can fill out to to let us know about the situation that they're facing, and and we'll get our team on it right away. Uh, we also have a one eight hundred number and an email that they can send us a note and and let us know that they need some help. But um, we're always here, three hundred sixty five days a year. We're always working, and and we try to take some breaks. But if somebody calls and they need help, and and certainly a lot of times we get these phone calls, and it's it's at the last minute, and they've only got a few days or a week to participate in that permit process or something like that, and we go to it to try to get them as much help as we can. Great, you know. Let me just ask you. Uh, I hadn't really thought of this question before, but um, internationally. Are these CAFOs moving into other countries also? Absolutely. Yeah, we don't do any work. SRAP does not do any work outside mm -hmm. of the United States, but I do know that, that CAFOs are certainly a problem in other countries as well. Mm -hmm. Is all this protein being consumed or is it being stored? That's a good question. I know a lot of it's being shipped out of the country. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the environmental impacts that we're getting here in the United States, you know, uh, Smithfield, for instance, owns, I believe, one in every four hogs in the country. And they're they're owned by the WH group, which is from China. And they're sending their pork that they're raising here in the United States to China. So um, we're suffering the, the community impacts, the public health impacts, the, the environmental impacts, et cetera. And then that food is actually being taken away to another country. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that during the pandemic, certainly while we were seeing our grocery store shelves empty, 
food was going out at a greater rate out of the country. And, and yeah, we're, I, I, yes, SRAP does not work outside of the United States, but we definitely are contacted on occasion. And we definitely do hear reports of the of concentrated animal feeding operations coming up in greater numbers or in other countries, certainly. And I actually in China, they, they're building these operations that are like multi levels, like eight and nine. And, and actually, I believe the people who work there live in these structures along with the animals. I can't imagine what that's like but there are these like eight and nine and ten floors of people that never leave and they're always working in there with these animals it's it's a situation i can't even imagine but i've seen some reports of that as well hmm. my goodness well okay thank you so much sherry um is there anything else you want to add no, absolutely not. I just, you know, if somebody's in need, if they're facing an operation coming in, and that can be a CAFO, a factory farm, a concentrated animal feeding operation. We also do work with slaughterhouses that are coming in that are these large slaughterhouses that are coming into some of these rural communities. You know, um, there's factory farm gas, that these digesters that are a new issue that are popping up around the, around the country as well. So it's not just factory farms anymore, unfortunately. We're seeing a lot of requests for, for communities that are suffering um, on multiple levels from lots of different things that are being built around them. So um, anything that you feel you're worried that it's going to impact your quality of life, your public health, your environment, your water, uh, please, by all means, um, get in touch with us. We also have several programs. I, I guess I should mention our community support program is like the heart of, of what we do at SRAP. We also have a water rangers program. So if there's already an operation in your area um, and it, you believe it's polluting the water, around you, including your well water, et cetera, or you're seeing spills and that sort of thing, we can certainly help through our water rangers program to teach you and a group of people in your community to do some water monitoring and to actually work with the, the agencies around to try to help regulate those operations to keep those corporations uh, accountable in that situation. And then we have last uh, Food and Farm Network, which we launched this past year, which is really to engage communities beyond that community support KFO fight. So once that fight's over and, and that, you know, has resolved itself in one way or the other, either it's going to be built or not, we want to make sure that we have an opportunity for, for engaging and, and um, getting these community members to advocate for better food and agriculture systems. So we are looking at leadership development opportunities for them, coalition building for them, as well as actually engaging them in policy efforts, either at a state or a, a national level. Excellent. You know, uh, you mentioned methane digesters, and I wonder... Maybe we should just talk for a second on that because that's coming around, you know, it's being touted as the, um, well, the way to clean up the pollution and make energy out of it at the same time. How's that working out? In 2020, Lynn Henning, one of our star uh, um, team teamsters here at SRAP, did some, some research and actually found that um, these cap and trade programs are in these digester programs that are actually paying, you know, these operators, these CAFO owners to set up these digesters on their property. Lots and lots and lots of public dollars are going toward these, these operations. Um, not only does that not fix the problem that these communities are already suffering from. So that when it, when a, if you think about it, if an operator puts a digester onto their property, they're doing nothing to actually fix the problem that the CAFO itself is still causing. And in fact, what they're doing is getting public dollars to build an, an operation that will then in, in, uh, inspire or encourage them to grow their operation so they can create more 
energy with more waste. And that's what the research shows. Lynn did a lot of research in 2020, and, and it actually shows that these capo owners, these operations are growing in numbers of animals that they're bringing through these operations because it feeds that digester system. So we're actually creating more waste, more problems, more impacts on local communities, all with this under this uh, you know scheme that this factory farm gas is better for the environment and for the climate. And it's simply just not. Oh my goodness, does it never end? It doesn't, unfortunately. Uh, you know, Sherry, um, you just touched on public dollars and we, should, we shouldn't leave this conversation without talking about this kind of subsidized um, building that, that we're seeing. If, if, you're a CAFO, if you're a person who wants to farm and you decide you wanna go into concentrated animal feeding operations, what kind of government benefits are there for you? What? Yeah, they actually, and, and again, I'm not probably the best person. I will try my best to answer this for you, but Craig Watts, who's on our team, he's a former, former poultry grower. And we actually have two other former contract growers who are on our team, Michael Diaz and Susie Crutchfield. And they will all speak to you and I've heard them. So I'm going to sort of reiterate what I've heard from them the best that I can. But they talk a lot about guaranteed loans that these banks will give to these operators that are government subsidized. And the only way a bank will look at a CAFO, at a contract grower and give them this money is as long as they know that the, the loan that they're going to give them is guaranteed. Now, if you're looking at this from, a, from the contract grower's side, this is not a good financial situation. We've we we talk. I talk with Craig and with with Michael. Michael actually um, and Susie. They're all out of it now for a reason because they couldn't make it work financially. I think it's something like seventy percent of poultry growers live under the poverty level in the United States, and that's just that. This is not a sustainable business for those growers, but they get sold this line that that it's gonna be a win-win situation and that corporation is gonna take care of them, et cetera. There's a lot that's that's there that I could we could talk another hour about that. I won't do that. But the fact is, is that the government's working with these banks to guarantee those loans for those banks. And it's not for guaranteeing the contract grower, it's for the bank. So the bank is safe, the corporation's safe, the contract grower is taking on all the risk, all the debt risk, all of the risk of managing the manure that's there, having to deal with the, the spills and that sort of thing, if, if those things are happening with, a, with environmental impacts, et cetera. And so it's, it's a system that is not good for, for the actual contract grower. So that's what we're trying to do through that contract grower transition program is not only get folks out of those terrible situations. And I just got an email today about someone who's son committed suicide, he ended up getting a divorce, I, they went through bankruptcy. These things are real live. They're causing real destruction in families around the country. And we have to start talking about it and we have to start you know, helping these people understand there's a, there is a way out and there's a transition you know, path that they can take through our program and, and with help from other funders that we might be able to bring in to help them or financial advisors or whatever it is that they need to help transition them. There are some other organizations nationally that will help them transition their farms to something else more sustainable. So there's there are options out there and we're actually doing the research right now so that we can help growers get out of that, that system. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you, Sherry. I really appreciate this. Um, 
there's anything else you think of, just send me an email. Uh, it will probably air. Uh, I think it'll air this week on Wednesday. If not, it'll be the week after. And I'll let you know. Terrific. And then is okay. it okay with you if I make a podcast from this? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay, great. Um, I think I'll, I think I will do that. So thank you much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your work. Absolutely. So impressed with what you guys do. Thank you. Thank you for your support. I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you later. Yeah.